Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorick Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today, I am excited to say we are in the presence of Black royalty, a la Wakanda forever. We are in conversation with Academy Award-winning costume designer, Ruth E. Carter. With over three decades of film and TV credits under her belt, Ruth's collection of work celebrates and amplifies the African descendant experience in personhood over several time periods and other worlds. Her mode of visual communication through costume and fashion tells the story of Black identity in all of its diversity, as seen in Spike Lee's School Days, Do the Right Thing, The Five Heartbeats, Love and Basketball, my personal favorite, Four Brothers, Shaft, the Tina Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It, Selma, The Butler, Robert Townsend's Meteor Man, Eddie Murphy's Dolomite Is My Name, and Coming to America, just to name a few. Also known for her work on the remake of the miniseries Roots, which she earned an Emmy nomination in 2016, and for films Malcolm X, another personal favorite, and Amistad, for each of which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Costume Design, Ruth became the first African-American to win the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in 2019 for the epic film Black Panther. That same year, Ruth also won the Career Achievement Award from the Costume Designers Guild. Notwithstanding her trailblazing career with these achievements, including a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Ruth is passionate about mentoring and sponsoring up-and-coming designers of color, continuing to inspire and raise up future award winners. I'm excited to learn more about this woman, the creative mind and talent of one of our generation's top fashion innovators and designers. So welcome, Ruth. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really eager to take a walk with you and learn a little bit more about your journey of belonging to Blackness thus far. We have a lot of ground to cover, so are you ready? Sure, let's go. All right, we're going to get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. All right, Ruth. So you are an expert storyteller, right? So you use the medium of textiles and fashion to share narratives of culture, race, politics, with a particular attention to nuance, color, and texture to each of the culture-shifting characters we see on both the big and small screens. So Mm -hmm. what I do know about you is that you were born and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts, a city Mm -hmm. dubbed the City of Firsts for its history of innovation. So for folks who may not know, Springfield is known for having the United States first armory and military arsenal. It's known for the first American-made automobile and for being the birthplace of basketball. Springfield is also a city with a vibrant Black community. Since the mid-1800s through the Great Migration and the Civil Rights Movement. For you, being a pioneer in many ways, it's in your DNA. So what or who inspired you to become a creative, to specifically use costume design as the platform to tell stories, and specifically African-descended stories? My feeling about being a storyteller stems from my affinity to Black history. 
I've always loved the storytelling aspect of Black history. I was raised reading poets and literature like Sonia Sanchez and James Baldwin. I could really see the images that they described. When you think of Mother to Son, the poem, Life for Me Ain't No Crystal Stair. I grew up in a community that supported Black history, Black literature, Black art. So I was aware of Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden. I was in a lot of programs in Springfield, like Uhuru Sasa that was at Amherst College. My mom, from a young age, you know, she was a single parent of eight. So she would get rid of us on the summer. You're going to this summer camp. You're going to that summer camp. And because she was a single parent, it was all free for us. Uhuru Sasa was a remedial program where you went and you brushed up on your math and science, but you also had Black music, Black drama, Black dance. You had all these programs that they were enriching these urban kids with. And then as I got older, I graduated from Uhuru Sasa to Upward Bound. And the Upward Bound program, you stayed in the dorms at University of Massachusetts, where it was at. But even then, they taught you about Black literature, Black history. So I was very grounded in my diaspora. By the time I got to college, as a matter of fact, from my experiences as a junior high school and high school kid meeting college students at UMass and Amherst College, I was like, the revolution will not be televised. (laughs) I was the girl who went to Hampton and HBCU and I brought my 10-speed bike, all my favorite t-shirts. You know, I have one with Nelson Mandela on it that my brother had illustrated and made into a t-shirt. So When I got to the HBCUs, it was dark and lovely because I went down south. So my experience in Springfield was as an activist. I knew jazz and I knew all kinds of artists pursuing their art as well. You know, writers. These were the teachers at the Upper Bound Program. These were the teachers at the Uhuru Sasa. So I had to adjust when I got to Hampton, but I had one mentor there. I had several mentors, let me not lie. But I had one in particular, Linda Bolton-Smith. And she had gone to Vassar, Brandeis. So she had been in my territory and she was my teacher of Black theater. So we read Sty of the Blind Pig and I was acting in these plays. She was directing and acting and I was her mentee. And she taught me to journal, hand my journal over so she could examine it and stuff. So that's kind of what molded me, you know, on top of youngest of eight with two brothers that were fine artists. And growing up, my one brother was in the Air Force, but he was a fine artist, oil painter. My other brother that was closer to my age He was an expert with chalks and pencils and could do portraits. And really, the likenesses were astounding. So I had this artistic thing going on in the house where, you know, there was always a pad. There was always a pencil. There was always a chalk. 
that I could steal from them and go in my room and work. As well as in my room, there was my desk. My desk turned out to be a sewing machine. You know, those consoles that have the big leaflet that opens up and you pull the sewing machine out. When I discovered there was a sewing machine in my room, I was like, oh, let me figure this out. So there were patterns in the little drawers, simplicity patterns. So my mom had put this sewing machine in my room, probably primarily as a desk, you know, so I could do my homework. But I started sewing on that sucker. Wow. I never got to be like a phenomenal sewer. Don't get me wrong. I was mainly creating something. Maybe it was like wearable art to me, but Mm -hmm. I was just really trying to figure out these patterns. Single mom, she's not going out and buying me a whole bunch of fabric. So I'm up in our attic looking through bags of clothes, opening up jeans and making a jean jacket or making a skirt into something else. All of that influenced me. Yeah. And that's the life I wanted to lead. So I know that a lot of my audience members, age range runs the gamut. So I have youth listening as well as those who are a little bit more seasoned. And I'm thinking about this question with regards to my younger audiences. I love the fact that there were a lot of positive influences. You had your household and the fact that there is a lot of creatives there. You cited to your siblings You were placed in different kinds of programs and had access and opportunity to be exposed to a myriad of different forms of creativity. But what was really the thing that prompted for you to say, I want to live my life as a person who does costume design, fashion specifically? Because I think oftentimes when I speak with a range of creatives, it's apparent to most that that seed was planted early on, and people utilize the skills that they were blessed with already. But it's markedly different for many folks who choose to leave that as more of a hobby or a thing that I do with my friends or my girlfriend came over and said, oh, you're so great. Can you make me a jacket from these things or what have you? And then for you to say with consciousness, this is how I want to make a difference in the world. So what was that moment or that thing for you that prompted you to say, this is what I want to do? I had an affinity to like the performance of drama. And I never thought of myself as a actress. I just love to perform spoken word. Mm-hmm. And that was, like you said, sort of a hobby. I went to Hampton and I majored in special education because I you know, come from a legacy of teachers. Hampton was a family school and my cousins were studying education. And so I fell right in line. And I thought that it was going to be the thing that stuck. And it didn't. I was auditioning for plays and studying special education. I wanted to learn sign language and do theater for the deaf. Did a little of that in the drama department, and then I changed my major. I decided after two years of special education in my junior year that I would change to speech and drama is what the department was called. Mm -hmm. When I changed over to speech and drama, that's when I met these mentors. And I auditioned for a play, and I didn't get a role. But the professor who was directing the play, asked me if I would like to do the costumes. 
And because when I was a kid, I had that room where I could draw and paint and sew, I thought, yeah, I could do that. I actually went to Huntington Library on the campus of Hampton and got a book on costume design just to read what am I really responsible for doing? When I read it, I thought, oh, okay. And then I remember it had, and they make $50,000 a year. I was like, yes. (laughs) 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 So, So once I did that play, even though we had a drama department, there was no one teaching costume design. There Mm -hmm. had been, but she had left the university. So they Mm -hmm. gave me the key to this costume shop. And Mm -hmm. when I went in, the person who left, left it in great shape. There was a cutting table, sewing machines, a little bit of stock and material, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, wow, this was like an advance to my room at home. You know, it was like the next level. And I made that my home the rest of the time I was at Hampton. And I did every play when the music department did a musical. They have these like theater festivals that go around the universities. And I would do all of those costumes for the theater festival. And then Alpha Phi Alpha, we recreated Thriller, you know. I found that I was having fun and Mm. I was also learning something. And you had a lot of room to be able to play. Yeah. There was no curriculum for costume design and speech and drama. So I had to sort of figure out once I changed my major, okay, how do I use all of these classes I've already taken in education as like electives and all of this? What are the requirements? And switch everything over as best I could, then continue on. And I just found myself the costume designer on campus. That became your identity. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. So if we were to fast forward a bit and reflect on your work, it embodies the concept of Afrofuturism. It makes sense when you talk about how you grew up, the programs, the influences, because Octavia Butler is all over that. For folks who may not understand or know, the concept of Afrofuturism is really about the cultural aesthetic that combines science fiction, history, and fantasy to explore the Black experience and to connect those from the African diaspora to their ancestry. So, Ruth, for you, why is Afrofuturism important to your creative design process? And how does it then inform your design choices? I feel like I am Afrofuture. I was Afrofuture when I was at Hampton. I continue to be Afrofuture when I look at our history and I want to tell our story in a way that it has not been seen. So whether I'm recreating Malcolm X's life or the five heartbeats, I'm trying to come from a place where we have been ignored Mm. and to lay things out in in a light that empowers and also honors my work as an Afrofuturist is that I am someone who understands what being Black means and have had a lifetime living in an oppressive country that has reshaped our lives. And I'm someone who's trying to bring us back to self-empowerment, our rightful place on the throne being in technology and all of that helps to tell that story because it 
is a reimagined world like Wakanda, which mm -hmm. honors tradition. Also, it moves the needle forward in what we can do with our resources like vibranium. So I do the 3D printing, always looking to collaborate with artists that have incredible ways of also creating wearable art. That helps when you immerse it all together mm -hmm. to tell the story of a people who were brought here in chains and had a journey and a migration, a story before slavery and beyond. So I sit in that space, that really wonderful space that allows me to tell stories in that way. Actors that you've worked with have said themselves in different interviews the ways in which your fashion has enabled them to fully immerse themselves in these characters. And you can see that on the screen, particularly with Black Panther. But you can also tell for you in terms of your creativity that in order for you to create these fully realized and fully dimensional characters, that there's an entire process. So what's your sources of inspiration? What's typically your timeline for creation? Like there's a lot of research that goes into the work that you're doing. And any art, you have to have a process in order to get to the end, in order to be consistent. In costume designing, there is an inherent process. You get a script, you have a director, you read the script, you break it down, you figure out what the characters are and how many changes they have. But creatively, the process for you has to inspire you to believe in what you're doing. So you read your script, you go on the journey of the story, and you might say, oh, I'm going to look at Romare Bearden because I want to tell this story in sort of a collage, patchwork, colorful way, Southern way. Then they transition to the North with Romare Bearden. He did work that represented the Old South, and then he did work that represented the North and the city. You know, I might take Romare Bearden and start looking at Romare Bearden and all the color palettes. You do read in vivid imagination. So when you read the script, does it feel dark? Does it feel colorful? Does it feel bright? Does it feel happy? Does it feel sad? How does it make you feel? And that's the jumping off point. You have to go into your own collective library or go online and you start gathering images that represent what that story made you feel like. And then you start seeing it. If it's a period piece, you might go into research. A lot of times with period pieces, you don't get many images in color. So you really do need to make a firm decision about how the story is painted because sometimes the images won't give you that. And you have to do a little more in-depth research about what colors were they using in the 60s? What colors were around in the 50s in New York City? What did it look like in the 20s in Louisiana? You know, And then you start saying, oh, climate has something to do with it. Urban warfare has something to do with it. Or strife has something to do with it. 
you start making those firm decisions. And that's your launching pad. Once you have that, you can gather the images of clothes and fashion of the time. It's not as superficial as one might think of like, oh, you know, you're into fashion. It's really not just fashion that I'm into. I'm also into art, social economics, and Black history. I mean, we work with historians. A lot of times what you see in images, especially when it deals with like Great Migration, any of these uh, pivotal times in our history, it's always good to call the university and see if there's a professor who will talk to you. When I'm on a studio project, you know, I offer them a day's wage or I ask them if they could be an advisor to me over time. When I did Roots, it was with the History Channel and A&E. So I had a plethora of historians. What you see sometimes in the images, you don't know what you're looking at. Hmm. So you have to also do a little reading. When I am working on a period piece, I will have an ongoing book at home. When I'm tired of looking at like hundreds and hundreds of images and all these colors, I crack open that book. And I start reading when I read is as valuable as the images that I'm looking at. And they actually explain to me what I'm looking at. I'm much clearer. So it's important to be as authentic as you can. A lot of times images in art are propaganda. They are to raise the image of a conqueror, you know, like they were saving the savages. Right. You have to realize that you look at these images and you are influenced by them. So you need somebody to kind of like knock you out, wake you (laughs) up, tell you what was really happening in that. These people commissioned artists and they told the artists many times what to paint. Mm. That's the journey of costume design. It's historic and it's also fashion. It's the blending of it all. You're in a place of reimagining some of the propaganda. You're reimagining also to the interpretation of what's available to you in a script. Because the writer of the script perhaps has one interpretation, but it's your job to bring it to life in ways that provides context for us as the audience, even if it's a period piece. So there's a lot of work and research. And I'd like to ask just for clarification for folks, what's a typical timeline for creation? Yeah, it depends on what studio you're working with. Some studios will give you a longer time, but typically three months of preparation, research, implementation, building costumes, building multiples. It seems like a long time, but it goes by really fast. Well, I tell you, as a writer, three months isn't a long time. It could be three months of just research alone. Yeah, then there's about three months of shooting. But the process of prepping goes into shooting too. So if something is shooting at the end of the three-month shooting period, you have that much time to massage and build a prototype and try it on the actor and feel it out and all that good stuff. And sometimes, you know, what happens is with casting kind of hems you up because they don't give you the actors in a quick way. So you got an idea of what you want to do, but it really will depend on who they cast. Keep kind of curating the world that character would be in so you can pivot once you get to see them. It's a fast process. 
So we have the ideological, social, cultural, and economic footprint and impact of the first Black Panther. The film itself was unprecedented and it was historic. And so while it was based on a fictional reimagination of an African nation, the film's themes, issues, and characters in many ways served as a love letter to African descendants and paying homage to a beautifully complicated history and reality that we share across the globe. For folks who are going to be gearing up to see Black Panther 2 when audiences hear this episode, I want you to take us back a little bit and perhaps explain what was the experience like to be on the project the first time? And while you were in this process of thinking about your sources of inspiration, doing your research, being on this crunch time for your timeline, did you know that it was going to have the impact that it did? What was that like for you the first time? I had never done a superhero film before. And so when Marvel asked me to come in to meet Ryan Coogler, I kind of said, why me? Because I hadn't really been in the superhero world. I went into Marvel and it's like the CIA, you know, they like take a picture of you and put your (laughs) picture on a badge and doors locked behind you. You know, it's pretty top secret over there. And I went into an office, sat in front of Ryan Coogler and Nate Moore And we began a conversation about Afrofuture. I had pulled together a bunch of images that I thought would be good to show them regarding Afrofuture because I didn't get a script. There's no script that they share with you before your interview. You just know you're going in to meet on the Black Panther. To prepare for it, I called my brother and his friends. He was a police officer in Springfield. And before I knew it, he had three cars in tandem talking across windows, shouting into his phone because they were so excited (laughs) that the movie was going to be made. So I knew going into this interview that this was big. I was trying to open up my images on Dropbox and they have a firewall and you can't just open up Dropbox at Marvel Studio. And it kind of made me a little concerned and panicky. Ryan kind of like broke the ice and said, I'm really glad you're here. I love Spike Lee's films. He was, you know, someone who I looked up to as a filmmaker myself. He said, I was six years old when I sat on my dad's lap to watch Malcolm X. And I remember at that age looking at costumes. Mm. I stopped freaking out about my Dropbox. And I realized that this guy just wanted to talk about filmmaking and Mm. storytelling, authenticity of the African diaspora and Africa. Nate Moore went and got his computer, which allowed him to go out into Dropbox. I put my code in and we started sharing images. I realized that as they walked me around the offices, some of the images that I brought in, they also had on the wall. So I talked about being a part of Uhuru Sasa. I talked Mm -hmm. about being a part of Upper Bound, the Boys and Girls Club down the street from us celebrated Kwanzaa. And it is similar to, I feel, what Ryan's parents might have instilled in him in Oakland. There was this beautiful meeting of the minds. 
the process of making the film was real heavy. I had never done those kinds of costumes before. So there was a whole process, but Marvel showed me a lot of support. Working with a crew that large, there were all of these things, even though I had 30 years experience, I was still delving into new territory. We didn't think of it as, oh, wow, you know, like this is special, make it special. I think we all went into it like, let's make it right. Mm. People were so like, oh, is this going to look like the Lion King? And I was like, this is not coming to America. (laughs) It is not the Lion King. Even though those are great films, the one thing that we knew was that we were going to build Wakanda. Hannah Beekler as the production designer, brilliant mind, amazing creativity with Ryan Coogler as our director who has a vision and could give good direction. You say, I don't know what to do with these blankets. You know, I know that this needs to be a shield. And he's like, let's put vibranium on one side. That's how we got to the blankets being a shield with vibranium, which is like the hardest metal in existence. It's fictitious. These are the things that Ryan Coogler brought to the table. He thought of the Dormelage and he gave out the instruction of what he wanted to see in the costume. He wants them covered from head to toe. He wants them in uniform. He wants them to feel like they are warriors. They're the highest ranking female fighting force in Wakanda. They need to be taken seriously, not over-sexualized like the comics do. Right. So Anthony Francesco, he does the illustration. It comes to me and I bring it into Africa. So there's a process, there's support. And we felt like we were doing something special that we knew. Mm. No idea how it was going to do in the box office. And quite frankly, there's so much to do. You're not thinking about the what if. You're thinking about, I got to get this right. A long time ago, Spike Lee told me when he called me to come along and design Malcolm X, you know, he said, don't worry about winning awards, Oscars or anything like that. Just do a good job. And I never forgot that. And so I go into everything that way. I don't want to think about the what if. I'm already pressured enough. Right. Really, the reward is seeing it to fruition. That's the reward. So I kind of live by that. I love that. And I think when you are a high achiever, it's enough pressure that we put on ourselves. We have to win this award and we, it has to be great. When you already know that, hey, whatever I touch will be gold anyway. <laughs> One of the things that I've heard an artist say is that when you're painting a painting, it's a process of corrections. Mm. Got to correct this because I got to correct that. That's not quite right. I got to correct this. So if we felt like we were going to do something brilliant, then we're starting nowhere. It's like, who does that? Really, you start with something kind of almost like you don't like, and you correct it and correct it and correct it till it gets to a point where you can present it. Because most artists feel like their work is never finished. It's really hard for me to let go. I also appreciate what you added too, is that the kind of space that you had to create the world of Wakanda for what we see it today in terms of the costumes, 
It reminded me of how you just described your experience being in the costume studio at Hampton, where you had all the tools and resources at your disposal. And so there was freedom in there. And then through your mentorship and sponsors, you were guided and given some direction, but you really had a lot of room to play. So now we have Black Panther 2. What's your approach this time around? What can audiences expect to see that's different and or innovative? What was this experience like the second time around? We created Wakanda Forever in the midst of a pandemic. So the first and most obvious thing that was different for us was that we were meeting on Zoom, 35 people on a Zoom instead of 12 in a conference room. I mean, Zoom allowed you to be on camera and five of your assistants to be in the background on camera as well. That was scary because we knew how much work was involved with creating the first one. We lost Chadwick Boseman, which is our second big hurdle. We're in a pandemic. We lost our hero. Can't embrace each other and grieve in the traditional way. That brought us all closer. The thing that Zoom allowed us to see, which kind of brought a family environment, was that people were at home. And so, you know, children were crawling into the laps of the filmmakers and you were seeing their kids or a wife would come in and say hi. We were having breakfast on different coasts. So you could sit there and eat your parfait on Zoom. And we shared a lot of imagery. And I think more of an intense way. Did a lot of decks, a lot of presentations. While Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole were rewriting a script that was written for Chad. The creative kept going without any real knowledge of how the story would end up. And Ryan would give us a verbal preview of where they were going with the story so we could kind of know how to pivot, what things to work on. Then we landed in Atlanta and we had five times more story than the first movie. There were several companies and groups that I went to to have different things built for us. We had a way of sharing our final designs and approval process, but that was also time consuming and the making of a superhero. And we had nine of them in Wakanda Forever is a long process. Introducing nine new superheroes in Wakanda Forever. So you have Namor. You have Namora, you have Atuma, and they're part of the Tola Kanil. Another hurdle, because we are introducing this underwater community inspired by the Mayans. We may have been at an advantage on the first movie because we all were familiar with the African diaspora. But on this one, we were not familiar with Mesoamerica. And therefore, we had to rely on historians. Historians came through for us. So just as I was saying, you know, the Aztecs and the Mayans are very different. Most people, when they look at Mesoamerica, they just think Aztecs because it was a big civilization. And they did a lot of pageantry. And a lot of people think of Apocalypto when they think of the Mayans. 
But the Mayans were a smaller community and they were coastal. Once we realized what we were doing, we were able to flourish and create this underwater world. We had a lot in front of us, a lot in front of us. We had to get COVID tested three times a week. There were zones where if you were in zone A, you could be closer to the actors. If you were in zone B or C, you could not. You had to wear a mask and a shield during fittings. There is a connection that you make when an actor comes into your fitting room where the costume and the character come together and like souls merge. Mm. That extra layer, that COVID layer was a bit of an uncomfortable barrier. It was hot. We went through a whole summer. You're wearing this shield on set. You're wearing a mask. You're trying to communicate. And there was just one hurdle after the next. But the one thing that remained constant was that we were together like a family. We could ask for help. We were not afraid to ask each other for help. I think that's what got us through. So I appreciate you identifying many of the different hurdles that occurred while being a space to be creative. Right. I mean, we have the global pandemic of COVID. We also have the global pandemic around Black lives and our treatment by law enforcement. People look to the iconography that was available to us in the film as a yeah. lean on to feel affirmed in those ways. And I can imagine as part of just, of course, also losing Chadwick Boseman, how that also impacted the spirit in the heart of the film, because he was very much the heart of the storyline of the characters and how it propelled the movie going forward, even as we connected to the other movies in the Marvel franchise. One of the things that I really appreciate you talking about, too, is just ways in which we're expanding our world of not just Black bodies, but it's Black and brown bodies and thinking of a myriad of different diasporas that help to inform and also coexist alongside the African-descended diaspora. I'm actually going to ask you a question. Maybe hopefully you could spill a little bit of tea because we know that you've worked with luminaries in the field from actors and film directors like Spike Lee. And because you worked with one of my favorites, Denzel, Malcolm X, Oprah, the late John Singleton, Angela Bassett, along with Chad Bozeman, what is the most insightful experience that you've had and the lessons you've learned when you've been working with these fellow trailblazers? I think the trip to Egypt with Denzel on Malcolm X, recreating Malcolm X's Taj to Mecca was the most impactful to me as a filmmaker because our first day of filming, and this has a lot to do with the way that Spike Lee likes to create an experience. Our first day, we caravaned out to the pyramids to film a priest in the desert with the pyramids behind him calling the morning prayer. We all caravaned in the darkness before sunrise to set up and get ready. And as the sun rose and we heard this prayer that is sung very systematically and beautifully by a Muslim priest and the cameras were rolling, we were a very small crew, a splinter unit, 
went to Egypt. That was the time that I felt the most ingrained in the filmmaking process with everything that I had to do from dressing people out of a small van to getting Denzel Washington perfectly right as Malcolm X telling the story of Malcolm X and seeing him draped in the Muslim way that I had research images of the real Malcolm X doing the very same thing. That famous image of Malcolm X on his knees, praying his hands together in front of him. And to be in the actual Muhammad Ali mosque, Denzel doing the same action. And I've recreated the wardrobe that Malcolm X had on, on Denzel. That's when I personally felt triumph and felt connection to filmmaking. Malcolm X is really one of my true favorites. Visually, from the costumes especially, I felt transported and I understood visually what was being communicated to me. I would say specifically for Denzel, the costumes also was very much attached to his own transformation as Malcolm X. When you saw him in costume, he himself transformed. That's a testament to your skillfulness that for you to say, I really felt ingrained in the film that you were so connected and you found triumph because you were able to replicate, but yet still speak to the spirit of Denzel coming through as Malcolm. And that's why you garnered the Academy Award nomination for it as well. Can you tell a brief story about Auntie Oprah? I did The Butler with Oprah, and then I did Selma. And on The Butler, I was excited that she was coming to my fitting. I'm not a stylist, so when you're dressing someone like Oprah to be on the red carpet, you're calling, like, you know, Alexander McQueen and Louis Vuitton, and she has a whole room full of things. And then I was like, okay, this is the 60s. So I'm only going to have like so many things for her. And she's a very specific character. And what I appreciated about her when she came in was that she wanted to play the character and she wanted to be the character and she Mm. didn't want to be Oprah. And so I didn't feel like I didn't have enough. I felt like we were discovering this character, the butler's wife, you know, together. And so we came up with the story of the butler's wife in costumes for her. And one of the scenes in the butler's where she's escorting her son to college, to the bus station. I grew up getting on the train, the Amtrak, to go to Hampton. I was familiar with, you know, okay, this is Butler and his wife taking their son to the Greyhound bus station, and he's got a box with his fried chicken in it. And so Lee Daniels wanted Oprah to wear her hair in curlers. Oprah and I looked at each other, and we were like, oh, oh, no, no, no. Lee, as a filmmaker, is, I mean, you think of Precious and the films he's done, you know, he loves that shock value. You know, he likes to turn you around. No Black mama is going to drop off (laughs) her child who's about to embark upon this very important life journey with curlers. There's pride. She's going to come dressed. Yeah. And the butler was a pillar in his neighborhood. He was an example of success. He worked for presidents at the White House. He was in the room where the meetings were happening. So, you know, they had also image. Oprah tried and tried and tried to convince Lee that that is not the way to go. And one day I just called up Lee Daniels and I explained my feelings about it. 
one of the things I do remember is wearing that kerchief on your head and you would have your curls nicely laid underneath and you'd have that kerchief tied underneath your chin, you know, just in case it got windy, your new do was protected, you know. I convinced him. And I text Oprah at the time I had her text. And I said, Lee has agreed to no curlers. And she called me up within a half a minute. And she said, how did you do that? It was a fun thing to have accomplished between the two of us and creating that character. She came and sat in my fitting room. We went through the process of trying on clothes and and then when we were done, her driver had left to go on an errand for her. And he hadn't come back yet. So we're sitting there and I usually have a couch and a chair in my fitting room. Felt like I was on the Oprah show. And I was like, <laughs> sitting on the couch with Oprah. <laughs> and she was like, I like your nails. I was like, thank you. I got them done at this place over here on Magazine Street in New Orleans. And then when I went back to that nail shop, they were like, oh my God, Oprah came in here. I love that. I don't know how you don't fan out when you're working with some of these luminaries, but um, I fanned out with her for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I know that you had mentioned earlier that one of the lessons that you learned from Spike Lee, like, look, just do a good job. It's been obvious from the career that you've had. Honestly, you've been doing more than just a good job. You've observed so many different shifts over the last three decades of your career. Where do you think the field of costume design will be in the next five to 10? And what is it that you want your legacy to be? When I first started Hollywood films, they have this thing that's called studio services. And you go into the department stores, the big ones, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, and they have an office. So when you're working on a film, you go in the office, you get a badge. You write your name on the badge. So people in the store, the general salespeople, they won't wait on you because your studio services, so they don't get commissions. And you pick up clothes that you want and you bring them back to this office and then they write it up. And you're able to take like racks of clothes out of the stores and have these big Hollywood fittings. And when I first started, there weren't very many Black people doing this, especially Black women. Some of the Black women that were doing it, you know, had maybe started with me on a show and moved into design. But there was hardly any people of color. You didn't think that you were breaking any ground. You were thinking, oh, God, I'm in this white industry and I've got to prove myself. Now, when I go into the studio services and I see a Black girl getting her stuff together for her show, I have this overwhelming feeling in my heart Mm. that I had something to do with her being here. I walk a foot off the ground after that because there are stories that belong to us and that don't belong to us. We can be in this industry and tell any story in the future. We'll be cemented in this industry in a way that we have not seen yet. And what you're citing, too, is the ways in which representation matters. You being present and in some of these spaces, even when you talked about your experience with Lee Daniels, that scene in The Butler, you're drawing on your own experiences being 
perhaps in contact with folks in Springfield, where if there were folks in the neighborhood that were establishing to do, you know, you would not see them in curlers. Even my mother, a single parent, she would be like, oh, no, wait a minute now. I need five more minutes. I got to take this hair down. Those experiences, those anecdotes, those sorts of influences help to inform even what you brought and how you were able to have conversations with directors, how you were able to even think about the designs and costume choices and the colors and the fabrics to tell the story with the actors. You're doing all that as representation. So then you have these young and upcoming folks doing the same thing. And then I love the idea that we're not only to be relegated to African descended stories. We're storytellers. And that representation for me means that I've opened the door and allowed you to explore your creative thing. Your creative thing may not be what I have done. You have the ability now to bring in another side to this. And I can't wait to see what that is. Get it Act three, where we land. All right, Ruth, we've gotten to the end of our program, and this is usually a time that I ask all my guests latest projects that they're working on, where can people learn more, get involved, follow you, all these things, because people are very excited. And I'm sure it doesn't end with Black Panther 2. I'm sure you're currently working on some other projects. If you can kind of show us a little bit of ankle, maybe a knee, and telling us... (laughs) Oh, I'm working on Blade for Marvel, and it stars Mahershala Ali, and we are in the prep process. We won't be finished for a while, so it'll come out in 2024, Mm -hmm. and it's exciting to come back to the film that Wesley Sipes made famous with another story, but you can follow me on Instagram. That's the one platform that I'm the most active on. I am the real Ruth E. Carter. If you want to see some snippets of what's going on in my life, I try is all I could tell you. (laughs) Thanks for having me on this podcast. It's been a really nice talk. Thank you so much, Ruth. Appreciate you. Appreciate your gifts. And we can't wait to continue to see what's next. Many blessings. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.